You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams, and you're listening to Superlative Podcast. I have a very special guest today, Mr. Jeff Hess. Jeff is a man who has many accomplishments in the watch industry under his belt. Um, he is a store founder, uh, he is an author, he is an expert, he is an enthusiast, he's a manufacturer. Um, he has just done a lot of things. He also calls himself a horologist, which outside the wrong right circles, I don't know that you'd want to start calling yourself a horologist, but that's part of the the, the fun that us, us enthusiasts uh, chat about. Jeff, welcome. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Gosh, that's a bad way to start. Uh, it's good to be here, sir. Now, do you think that I adequately described the breadth of experience and accomplishments that you have brought to our our corner of the world? Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm just a watch guy. Um, I enjoy watches. I've been in the watch business since I was uh, a kid and um, literally since I was 17 or 18 years old. So, yeah, I, I, I my whole life is about watches and horology. Now, one of the things that I always enjoy when – we're able to get together, which has been a while now. And one of the reasons that uh, it's it's just, it's so weird not to be able to see friends, but we always get into these really like detailed conversations about product quality, design merit, uh, you know, how attractive a particular brand is or something like that. Like we get into watch guy conversation, as I call it, immediately. And we find around the world, these sort of like watch guy buddies, no matter what's going on, we'll be able to, um, you know, just find an ability to connect over this. Do you find it has been very great for you socially to be to be a watch hobbyist? Have you made a lot of friends? And of course, there's the business side, but do a lot of your friendships also revolve around watches? Yeah, I think you know the answer to that. Almost all of my friends are involved in the watch business or watch collecting in some manner. You know, of course, I have friends that are outside of the business, but the overwhelming majority are involved in some manner. Uh, as you said, some are designers, some are researchers, some are antique watch aficionados, vintage watch aficionados, and some are distributors and, you know, big time watch dealers, big time watch companies. Um, you know, at some point um, in their career, in my career, it seems to intersect and uh, we end up being friends. And my wife and I talk about that all the time. She says, gosh, it seems like all of our friends are watch people. And yeah, yeah that's the case. And I think that's one of the sort of unspoken yet extremely major benefits of being an adult who's into watches that it is a it is a social avenue it's a way to meet people way to have friends it's a way to relate to people it's i i i don't want to insult anyone saying this but it's a, a it's sort of like sports, but a little bit more intellectual. I want to say like a thinking man sports, but there's some very smart people are into sports. But do you feel me? Like it's a similar kind of connecting thing? Yeah, I think you might offend some people by saying that, but I think you're absolutely correct. And, you know, I remember when I first found social media and watches with Time Zone back in the day, you know, when Time Zone was located in Malaysia or whatever, you know, and then, of course, they got very important and then they kind of like, weren't so important, but 
when they first started really ramping it up on social media, they didn't even call it social media back then, and they started having these get-togethers and things, you know, it was it was just amazing because all these like-minded people would meet up in San Francisco or New York City or wherever, and it was like you had an immediate friendship, an immediate connection because of watches. It's really crazy. It, it is, and I think that there would not be a modern industry as there is if there wasn't that social component to it. But within the social component is something very strange, and that is watches can bring very diverse people together, but at the same time, those people still are very diverse, and they might not agree on anything other than watches. And so the sort of the, the cultural clashes which can occur in our industry seem to be almost unparalleled in, I guess you could say, sort of the, the men's accessory space, right? Like we have to be not only experts in products, but, but diplomats. And d- when did you realize that you were also a diplomat? Mm, gosh, uh, I've been a watch diplomat for a long time. You know, um, my professional life is, of course, about, uh, you know, uh, like you said, I own a couple of retail stores and we we uh, were authorized dealers for uh, for a lot of uh, great, great watches. And then I do research and uh, with vintage and everything else. But in, in reality, uh, I do this for fun also. So I've been the moderator on the National Association of wristwatch uh, collectors uh, board, the NAWCC, uh, for about 22 years. And, you know, when it comes to collectability of watches, you know, you can't step on anyone's toes, you know? I mean, there are guys that collect the most god-awful watches, and I won't even say the name. I know who you're, I know, <laughs> I know that you know what I'm thinking. Um, and you don't even want to say that those watches are god-awful, even though 99% of the watch world knows that they're god-awful. So, you know, in the world of the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors, it's all about collecting. So if somebody wants to collect, you know, watches made out of tar, you know, that you you have to give them their space. And the Rolex and the Paddock guys, you know, they're quite often at each other's throats. So it's it, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, so let me, let me bring that up. I think it's a great... Thing. And I, again, I love to jump around to these sort of like odd eccentricities of, of being in the watch world. That's one of the things I'd love to explore on the show. But uh, how should I say, it, strong emotion, sometimes vitriolic emotion. What is the psychology you think behind bringing so much of your personal angst sometimes to the hobby? Meaning there's watch collectors that get into almost violent fights about the most inane stuff. Why does that happen? I don't know, man, but I got to tell you that I I have discussed this so many times uh, back to the NAWCC, you know, so I'm I'm the moderator, right? And everybody hates moderators. They hate mods. Everybody does. So I try to just let the conversation flow. If a guy wants to collect, you know, only tourbillons, only Swiss tourbillons, or if he wants to collect only Invictus, uh, you know, whatever, I just let it flow. But it's interesting, in the NAWCC, the clock board and the pocket watch board and the military (laughs) watch board are all pretty much strife-free. But the wristwatch board flares up in these incredible, crazy, maniacal wars, flame wars. It's crazy. There's so much more passion about wristwatches 
and no one knows why. Why should there, why should there be more passion about a wristwatch than a pocket watch or a clock or whatever? It just doesn't make any sense, but you're absolutely right. It's just nuts. So wait a minute. It doesn't happen like with the clock guys? They don't have these same fights? No, nah, they, they have an occasional fight, but, you know, but they're but there, there's a lot of decorum involved and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of science involved and, there, and there's a lot of uh, deprecation, self-deprecation involved. But the wristwatch guys, no, they get on there, they make their point and they will tell you factually and with 100% certainly, certainty that they are correct. And it's, it's just like you say, it's a very passionate subject. Now, as a retailer, I think one of the things that marks at least the successful American retailers I've met is it, and you're you're among them, is that you curate your own sort of selections, meaning you don't go to the market to try to identify like, you know, what are the popular watch brands out there and what should I carry? You actually have a different p- uh, approach. You're more like a curator and you say, okay, these are the available watches out in the world that I like. What can I get my, my hands on that I can sell to people because I essentially want to sell them the stuff that I like? And that's sort of a very different approach than a, a lot of retail. Um, would you agree that being an enthusiast uh, in the in the category and having a curated approach has been, you know, one of the sort of hallmarks of your success? Well, it certainly was for me because in the beginning, I only wanted to, to uh, be an authorized dealer for brands that made their own movements. And they were scant. It was a scant few. You know, Gerard Perigo, uh, there were several other brands. and But I wanted, that's what I wanted. I didn't want anybody that just used just regular old uh, ETA movements or whatever. Can you explain well, why? Just out of curiosity. Well, because I was into the whole science of it. I, you know, I, I, I wanted to be unique. I didn't want it to be cookie cutter. Well, now, as you know, we've come a long, long way, and almost every brand has their own uh, manufactured movement or uh, at least their own calibers. Uh, sometimes they'll use a base caliber, but you know, it's it's come a long, long way, so it makes it a lot easier. Um, now. Uh, yes, I curate the brands that we carry in our two stores. I only want the brands that I can be passionate about. I've always said to everyone that will listen that it's a lot easier to sell a watch that you have a great passion for um, than it is something that you just want to sell because you can make a buck. You know, uh, Grand Seiko, for instance, very passionate about that brand. Brightling, unbelievable brand with a great history. And that was my second criteria, by the way. I either wanted wanted it to be to have their own movement, their own manufactured movement, or I wanted them to have a rich history. And Brightling's history is second to none. Grand Seiko is incredible, although the Swiss really didn't like Grand Seiko getting into the arena, but they pretty much accepted them now because it's so fantastic. Really an incredible watch. Uh, Carl F. Bucher, for instance, been around forever. They were one of the first retailers for Rolex back in the 1930s. So there are a lot of brands that we carry. At least Nardin, their military history is second to none. You know, they made watches for 50 different militaries uh, in the last 150 years. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my curation. You know, either a really, really rich history or making your own movements. So what I'm hearing, and again, I'm just trying to help people understand how retailers like you come about and how it is you make selections. You're attracted to a watch as being a tool as well as being a a facet of history, meaning a watch doesn't have some unique mechanical properties and doesn't have a story behind it. It just doesn't interest Jeff. And so Jeff wants to do is find watches and brands that interest Jeff and, and help 
you know, sell those to other people that will also like those stories. And of course, there's other retailers out there that maybe me, might be more uh, about, you know, modern watches and, and things like that. But you've, you've determined what you like about watches and you've amplified that in your retail business. And I think that's a very interesting business model. And also one that, at least from a corporate standpoint, you can never copy that, right? Like you can never have like a, like a, like a board of directors, like emulate your style. You know, it's, it's almost as though you, it has to be a, a personal service fueled by passion, right? That's, ex- that's exactly right. It, it, it's almost like, uh, uh, hmm. it's almost like an emotional symbiosis, if that's even a word, you know, the fact that I can get behind it emotionally and the fact that I enjoy it, that helps me sell it better, which makes us more successful. And I think that's the way it is with a lot of mom and pop stores, as they call it. Of course, most successful mom and pop stores today are a little bit bigger than just mom and pop. Um, you know, our two uh, our retail stores, you know, do a fair amount of business. But I think that the reason that a lot of the big brands still like mom and pop stores is because of the passion that mom and pop bring to the quote unquote marketplace. Now, one of the things that has happened in, in your corner of the industry has been the sort of proliferation of mono brand boutiques. And for people who don't sort of understand the context here, the idea is that, you know, Jeff's stores would have multiple brands. You would go in the store and he mentioned a couple of brands and ostensibly you could select from products for all those brands. But watch brands for commercial reasons have decided, hey, we want to start making our own stores that only have our watches. And those are competitive in the landscape. Um, to what they call, you know, uh, multi-brand stores or, or third-party retailers. What has what has been the effect of the mono-brand store? How has that changed things? I, I think that a lot of collectors prefer uh, multi-brand stores like your own. Um, but how has that affected the landscape? Uh, and talk about that a little bit. Mm, that's a very, very good question, a very nuanced question. Um, let's see, not to get too esoteric, but, you know, when I had my distributor hat on, I understand fully why the brands want to have mono brand store. You know, when I built Ball Watch from zero doors to 200 doors, and by the way, I'm no longer associated with them, um, you know, it's a little frustrating when you open a door for a brand in Omaha, Nebraska, or wherever, and you invest money into advertising that store nationally because they have your brand. And then, you know, Joe the Watch nut he walks into the store with your advertisement in hand say hey i saw this advertisement for ball watch or whatever watch and i want this watch and the store owner naturally is going to try to sell him a ten thousand dollar watch instead of a two thousand dollar watch so no matter how much advertising you spend and again this is me with my distributor hat on uh, to promote your watch when they walk into the store, the store is going to naturally try to sell you another watch. So I understand why a lot of the big brands want to have a model brand store. They want their advertising to be effective. If they're going to advertise Omega or Brightly or whatever it is, they want people to walk into that store and buy whatever it is. So I get that. Um, at the same time, it's very frustrating when I have my retailer hat on that, hey, this brand that you've carried for a long, long time, and you've put your heart and soul in, has said, nah, we want to go open up a mono brand boutique a mile away from you and you're out. So it's a very nuanced question, and I see both sides of it. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's changed the dynamic a lot because there are some brands out there that will only 
make certain models available at boutiques, which kind of drives the mom and pop stores crazy. Uh, but at the same time, it's successful. Some of the brands, and I'm not going to name any names, some of the brands have been very successful at these model brand boutiques, and some not so much. You know, you and I are both kind of on the inside. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard which brands are really going down the tubes, losing money like crazy, just using these model brand boutiques as an advertising venue, more or less. And then you see other companies like Breitling, for instance, who just knocked it out of the park with their design and with the way that they present the watches. You know, Breitling used to have these boutiques that were all about, you know, bright, garish colors and, you know, uh, scantily clad women and everything else. And they recently, under new ownership, changed it. And now it's a very, very masculine, inviting, non-threatening atmosphere where you walk into their boutiques and you feel like you're at home. It's fantastic. And that really, really works. Now, you've, you've mentioned something interesting that I think is a reality the industry has to face, and that is that there's no clear route of moving forward when it comes to a commercial um, strategy. There's a lot of competing commercial strategies right now, such as do you sell directly to consumers or do you work with third parties and distributors to sell to consumers and you sell to them via wholesale? There's these competing models. So in a sense, the industry is is infighting. It's competing in itself because there's no one dominant way of making money. And we see this in lots of different industries. I think, you know, the movie industry is a perfect analog where they used to have this wonderful model where movie would come into theaters and you'd make your ticket sales and some later date it'd be released on, you know, a, a way that consumers could watch at home. Now there's this competition. Let's bypass the theaters. Let's go straight to home screens. And it's causing a bit of a mess. This has been going on in the watch industry for a while. My question is, where do you think think, uh, you know, things will go? What do you think is it, the industry is going to look like after the water settles? What do you think in the moving forward is going to be the dominant way of, of selling watches to consumers? Well, obviously, the dominant way is to sell direct. Um, I don't know if the major brands, I think the major brands have kind of learned their lesson about that. It doesn't work as well as they think. You know, people still want to walk into a store to this day, even though they see it on the net. They still want to walk into a store and they want to, as as the cliche goes, see it, touch it, feel it, smell it, etc. Um, so I think that's going to be here for a long, long, long time. I think that they are going to continue to sell direct. And I know that infuriates uh, the mom and pops and the independents. But it's the mom and pops and the independents are here to stay. They're, they really bring something to the table that the watch brands cannot compete with. You know, we do very, very well with people who see something online. They're tempted to buy something online, but they'd rather come to their local retailer that they can trust and know that the local retailer is going to be there to service the watch if there's a problem, and they're going to be there to hold their hand throughout the entire process. I, I want to talk about this a little bit from my perspective, because this is the one of the biggest areas that I flipped on personally. You know, uh, I analyze the industry for business purposes a lot. I have to help make sense of this crazy world to the rest of the world. And as of a couple of years ago, I was under the impression that selling direct was probably the future, that there was not a lot of space for the third-party retailer 
in a lamenting way because I felt bad because I love the third party retailer, but I recognized that the industry, you know, it was it was it was a middleman that didn't necessarily offer value in the world of the internet where distribution was very different. And then I and then I backpedaled a lot because, like you said, I saw that when watch brands actually applied themselves to selling direct, it didn't work very well. And that there was a missing flavor, if you will, a certain spice that comes with having some third party selling for you that added an emotion that allowed for more sales to happen. Whereas selling direct was was just was really harder. And and I don't maybe you remember back in 2010, I wrote an article called Is Doomsday Coming to Watch Retailers? Do you remember that one? Oh, I've, I'm very well. Yeah, and that was, you know, that was very controversial at the time because that was not on anyone's radar. And, you know, that article used to get sent back and forth between executives at brands, and I'd have people say, Ariel, is this true? No one else is talking about this. Is this going to happen? But exactly what I predicted was going to happen happened even more so than I could have imagined. Um, you... You know, you're. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to find. You know, where to ask you the next question here because you and I agree on this. Um, but you acknowledge that this is an, an area of strife right now, and until the industry is able to figure some of this stuff out, there's going to be a lot of uh, tension, right? There, there is a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension between retailers uh, versus wholesalers versus secondary market people uh, versus, uh, you know, the age-old problem of certain Swiss companies, uh, and we know who they are, who overproduce, and then, you know, the stuff ends up out there on the gray market somewhere, which further hurts the mom and pop who have bought in at the normal price. You know, there's all kinds of weird, weird, weird machinations and things that go on behind the scenes that none of us really understand or can deal with. Because the bottom line with any company, whether it's the mom and pop or the big manufacturer in Switzerland, is the bottom line. You know, at the end of the day, they're watching out for themselves. But, you know, we're also forgetting about um, kind of a a third tier, if you will. Um, There's also something in the middle. A lot of the brands are now going to a model brand boutique, uh, but they're allowing a local entity to partner with them that gives the big brands the opportunity to mm, allow the local person to leverage all of his local contacts and his local advertising and he knows the lay of the land a lot better and it enables them to uh, exploit if you will um, the talents of the local person and yet keep it uh, you know, as a model brand boutique. So there's a lot of different ways to go after this. So let me explain this again, and because there's more of a of a mainstream audience, and I want to explain some context. What you're referring to is essentially kind of like a franchise, right? Um, for lack of a better term, where you, who are a third party, who are not employed by the brand open up a store on their behalf. It, it has their name on it for all intents and purposes. It's their store, um, but it's operated by you as, as, as a third party. And it's essentially, like you said, a hybrid somewhere between having um, you know, your own direct line of communication with the consumer and working with a local partner. And this notion of local partner, I think it needs to be emphasized because every country in the world has its local culture, has its local preferences and tastes and things like that. And you, you sometimes have situations where you have Europeans from the brands coming to various countries and running things as though, you know, Malaysia was like, you know, Switzerland, which it's not, or the United States is like Switzerland, which is not. And 
you you have this interesting thing where you have, you know, non-locals. You know, what are the risks? I mean, talk about that. What are the risks if you're a brand and you set up shop, you know, in your in your neighborhood in Florida and try to sell um, to the community? What's the risk when they just don't know what they're doing and they don't work with a local like you? Well, I can, I can certainly speak to that. You know, um, as a distributor, you know, I've noticed when I had 200 stores carrying one of my brands, um, you know, when you go into a, to a different geographical area, you have to, for instance, if you go into the South or the Midwest where I'm from, you have to slow down your patter a little bit when you're talking to somebody because they don't want to talk to a a fast-talking Floridian or a fast-talking New Yorker. Uh, conversely, if you go to, to a New York City retailer and you're speaking to him about your brand, you better speed it up, get to the point and get out because they don't want you, you know, uh, drawling and take, taking up a lot of their time. <laughs> so so, so there's, there's a great benefit to that. And also, as you and I know, without stepping on anyone's toes or being rude, um, a lot of our, our Swiss brethren – um, you know, they're often accused of not really understanding the American market as well as they think they do. So I think there's great benefit to leveraging uh, the particular um, uh, things that a local person would bring to market in any part, any geographical area of the United States of America. But, you know, the bottom line is it's, it's all about the horology. It's all about the fun. It's all about what, you know, owning uh, the engine on your wrist, as my wife calls it, um, and owning five or 10 of these engines on your wrists. I think you did a study once that said that the average watch collector has 22 watches or something, if I remember right. Is that correct? I, I've done a lot of studies on that. And, um, you know, it, it really depends on how many years you've been collecting. But what we find is this. The, the average size is probably between 10 and 30 watches, maybe around 30 watches, even though the consumer has purchased more than that. So what we're seeing is that a lot of collectors, the average um, offloads parts of their collection. No one just sort of keeps buying and buying and buying. I mean, it does happen, but it's actually rare behavior. Well, sure. You know, and as you know, the collectors call it thinning the herd. You know, <laughs> um, you know, you have 20 or 30 watches and, you know, uh, the wife kind of puts her foot down and says, hey, enough of that. Um, so, you know, you know, you sell the ones that, and you've heard the term wrist time. Those five aren't getting any wrist time. You sell those, go buy another one. And, you know, we, we kind of count on that in our business because, like you say, everybody, every guy has a lot of watches. It's one of the, you and I talked about it before. It's like the only accepted, really accepted uh, piece of jewelry that a man can wear. You know, that's about do it. Do you do trades? Meaning, like, let's say there's someone you know, and they're like, okay, Jeff, I got this watch, or I got these two watches. I guess I could sell it to you, but honestly, what I really want is just a different watch, either a better watch or just new variety. Do you do a lot of that? Do you find that's an interesting part of the business, or is it just not profitable? Uh, it's a great part of the business. Uh, you know, as you know, we have a very, very robust uh, vintage Rolex business and have been doing vintage Rolexes for a long, long time. And we do a very, very, very robust business in trade-ins primarily Rolexes. There are a lot of people who will bring in a wonderful vintage Rolex, an old stainless steel Submariner that's worth, you know, 20 grand, 50 grand, who knows these days, 200,000 sometimes. But they bring this watch in, they bought it for, you know, some old guy bought it in the 1960s uh, at the at the BX or the PX or whatever, you know, for $200. He, he can't get his head around the fact it's going to cost $700 to clean oil and adjust it. 
So he'd rather take, and, and you say, by the way, that watch you bought for 200 is now worth 20,000. He's thrilled to trade it in for a brand new watch that you have in your counter. Um, and we also run in our stores, I'm sure a lot of other stores do it too, we have periodical uh, trade-in days. You know, this Thursday, uh, March the 22nd is going to be bring your old watch trade-in day. And we'll, we'll trade it in for anything because, you know, a big part of my business is vintage. So whatever they bring to the table, um, you know, it makes it a lot easier. It also makes it a lot easier for them to, to, to get it by <laughs> their wife. You know, uh, I'm trading this one in for another one, dear. It's not a brand new watch, really. I'm just trading it in. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's a lot of, uh, you know, spousal uh, justification necessary. It's amazing the amount of guys that want to hide purchases or or have to go through an elaborate approval process or I have to get her something as well. And, you know, sometimes in the retail context, you have to be, I don't want to call a marriage therapist, but, you know, you have to you have to sit there and, and, and juggle a, a, a husband and wife who might be offset from one another, right? Oh, my God. We <laughs> We do that every every day. Every day, a guy comes in. He ogles a watch. He shows us the watch. You know, he he shows. I'm sorry. He shows it to the wife. The wife looks at it. You know, with this like just like this this look that could kill or a completely <laughs> uh, you know non passionate. I don't even know what you're talking about. Look, and if you, you can see the little cat and mouse game going on, you know, it's it's very interesting to watch. So what's the strategy? How do you make it so that he can walk away with a watch and she doesn't murder him later? Well, you know what? I always, I always, I always try to get him to buy a watch for her. You know, um, matter of fact, that's one of the reasons we sell a, a lot of ladies' watches brand new. Um, so many guys will come in four or five times in a year and buy four or five watches a year. Every once in a while, if they happen to bring their wife in and say, hey, listen, have you bought her? Oh, she doesn't like watches. Well, guess what? You put a nice watch on her wrist, guess what? She does like watches. It's, <laughs> it works very, very well. Um, I, and I'll tell you what, speaking of people who collect watches and who trade in watches, I have never seen a phenomenon as strong other than Rolex, than Grand Seiko. It's amazing the amount of passion involved in that brand. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. It was a slow burn. You know, it was a very, very slow burn. And uh, in the beginning, you know, there was a lot of pushback to the brand. But we were the first Grand Seiko dealer in America. Uh, some people say we were the fourth. But when they relaunched it about 11 years ago, we were the first. And boy, I tell you what, people looked at me and said, that's crazy. You can't sell a $6,000 Seiko. But there was something that really spoke to me about that watch. And I, it's really paid off. Because it is so crazy. You get a limited edition in of Grand Seiko and it is gone within literally a couple of months. Impossible to get within a couple of months. And the guys, and it's interesting about these guys, they don't trade in stuff. They keep it. I think the average Grand Seiko dealer probably has more Grand Seikos than the average Rolex collector. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely true. A brief moment to talk about footwear and our sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you've been looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the spot to find that pair you must have. Shoes are also now part of eBay's latest buyer protection program. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, 
logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. For sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 plus, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. I think for someone like you and me, because Grand Seiko isn't new, we sort of discovered and I don't want to say got over, but sort of had our affair with the brand years ago when they were quite different products, a lot less expensive and and, and much, much less known. Um, I remember in 2009, I was in, in Japan with Seiko, and this was prior to when Grand Seiko was widely distributed around the world. You can get in Japan, a couple of other markets like Hong Kong and Singapore, but for the most part, like, you, you couldn't get the watches uh, officially. You had to like you know go there and buy it or, or buy it online. And a couple of us, uh, we were, I guess, watch media professionals were telling Seiko because they were asking us questions about um, about you know what to do in, in, in other markets. We were like, could you guys just finally release Grand Seiko? And you know you could see the gears turning. And then I think it was like 18 months later they announced um, you know that Grand Seiko was going to be going more global, and it started to do that slowly. I I think what's what's amazing about it is that it's so focused on really good results for value. And now they've they've increased the prices because they want to be taken more seriously as a brand. What do you think they need to do next to keep the momentum going? Because now they have to to you know build more of a brand around it. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what? I I don't I think they are going to be able to carry over this goodwill that they have now. They could probably do anything. I mean, they could probably do even some negative things and still succeed. They are so strong right now. The buzz is so strong. I don't think there's much they could do to to hurt themselves as far as getting bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, I think they, they should kind of maybe take a little bit from that Rolex model. You know, Rolex is very careful about how much they release into the marketplace at any particular time. Uh, Rolex... Uh, uh, lessen the amount of authorized dealers they have around the country. And I think Grand Seiko should probably do that as well. They should probably try to slow their growth a little bit and try to still keep it exclusive. As long as they do that, they're going to be fine. You know what I think they're going to do, and, and you might disagree with me, but I have a feeling you won't, and that is essentially this. You, you create a, a, a network of dealers that is larger than you ultimately want to have. Uh, one, because you don't know who's going to succeed and what markets are going to be best for you. And two, so that once you get to the amount you want to have, you start you know, getting rid of some of them. And that puts fear in the hearts of the ones that, that, you st- that are still around, thinking like, oh, I should behave because there's all these little rules you need to follow. So I think that what they're doing is they're, they're making an overly sized network only to sort of like trim the fat a little bit later on. You know what I mean? I think a lot of brands have done that and they've done it successfully, but I also think it's a, it's, it's, it's a slippery slope. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's what all this stuff is. People don't recognize that the difference between having a very successful watch brand or product and, and having a total failure is just like the slightest line, right? Like this tiniest thing can budge something over the edge of success or failure. There's, it's, 
it's hard to succeed in this space because it's difficult to predict well it'll work. Do you agree, disagree? I agree 100%. And there are two or three brands out there, great Swiss brands, and I, I don't want to mention any names, that were extraordinarily successful. And they started overplaying their hand a little bit, and now they're gone. And I know who I know you know who I'm talking about. And you know you it, it's you, you have to be very 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 careful. You can't overplay your hand. You have to accentuate the positive. You have to treat your authorized dealers right. And if you do that, you're you're going to be fine. So what does that mean to treat your authorized dealers right? You know, like you're giving advice out there to anyone on the European side that might be listening. What can they do to make really high quality retailers like yourself happy in the long run? Well, I think the number one thing, and I and and I get in trouble for saying this all the time, but I think the number one thing that a lot of the uh, big manufacturers, the Swiss manufacturers, etc., uh, one of the things they don't do, and I I've never, yeah, I'm going to ask you this: Why don't they spend money on advertising? What is the story behind that? Is it because they don't think it's effective? Is it because they think they're above it? Is it because they think the United States is just some nice little country, like you say, like Malaysia or some other little country, and isn't so vast and so large that they need to advertise? What? That's the number one thing. I can explain very simply. I because I, I, look, I ponder this question. Uh, ad nauseum for for over a decade now, and and the reason that Jeff and I have the same question is essentially this: luxury watches is a marketing driven industry. Every company which is successful in this space has a long history of creating marketing material and spending money to distribute that marketing material. So companies today that want to be successful cannot ignore the fact that this is a marketing driven industry. With that said. There's very little marketing actually being spent. And, and one of the traditional reasons was that a brand like Rolex was so hot, it actually created more demand they could fulfill. So all these other brands could come in and sort of like calling it riding on the coattails of Rolex by picking up interest for all the people that didn't want something that was as mainstream. And, and I don't want to call it generic. Rolex isn't generic, but it doesn't really say a lot about the wear. Uh, pretty much any other brand will offer a little bit more uh, personality because uh, Rolexes speak for themselves. You know, I like to say you, you, don't, you, know, you don't wear a Rolex, a Rolex wears you. Okay, so the backdrop is that traditionally, a lot of them were able to ride the coattails of major marketers like Rolex uh, that the, the the dynamics are changing now. But the short answer, and again, I'm going to talk a lot about this because I thought about so much, is that spending money on advertising is incompatible with the mentality of running a manufacturer. These are factories, essentially, that focus on things like, you know, production efficiency, not wasting things. The idea that you need to throw money into the wild to sort of like seed demand that you later water with more money and then hope that you can harvest it and that you'll be able to uh, make money with that, that's that's a sales notion, which is completely different type of mentality than a manufacturing notion, right? So you have these companies, they're supposed to be good manufacturers, but also supposed to be good um, risk-taking companies. Then you also have the backdrop of, Switzerland being known for its risk-averse culture to anything related to do with investing. This is a banking culture. And to tell a banker 
spend $100,000 on an investment, you're not really sure what you'll get. You could get 200% return. You could get nothing. You tell a conservative investment community that, they freak out. So, you know, marketing, even though if you if you bet enough times you win at the end, is a lot like gambling. If you track the, the, the success ratio of every bet, you're like, oh my God, this is a terrible idea. I shouldn't do it. Until you look at the bigger picture and you realize, oh, I can't actually track the fact that I am entering the zeitgeist, right? That's untrackable, really. At least it's very difficult to track. So I know that's a bit of a long answer, but do you agree with me that these are essentially the reasons why? I I, th- I think you're on the right track. And I, I told you I wasn't going to mention any names, and I've tried to avoid mentioning names. <laughs> but I, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to mention one. I no longer carry this brand but one of my most successful brands that we ever carried in our two stores was Glasgow Original. And to me, I visited that factory like three or four times. Uh, to me, that it is one of the finest watches in the world. It's great stuff. It's I have one, it myself. It, extraordinary. It rivals anything out there. It's just an amazing brand. But they wouldn't spend a dime advertising. And so what do you have at the end of the day? If people out there don't know, don't realize, sure, little bitty countries, you know, the watch brand goes in, it gets some buzz. Everybody knows it's the greatest watch in the world. But in America, a lot of people, a lot of smart people, a lot of watch guys don't even understand what Glossier Original is all about. But if they spent just, it wouldn't even cost a lot of money, a few hundred thousand dollars a year advertising, they would triple their sales. I'm convinced because that watch is that good. But people just don't know it. Can, let, me, let me say this to you. Um, you. You're right. They absolutely had no history of doing that. And then they actually started advertising with us. And they've been doing so consistently because it has been working for them. So I guess the, the, the happy ending was they eventually figured it out. I didn't know that, but are they advertising anywhere else or is it just with like, uh, you know, real watch nerds like you? Obviously, you have a great following. I get that. But are they advertising on other venues? Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is the German watchmaker we're talking about. Give them about 30 years and they might get to the mainstream. <laughs> well put. <laughs> um, you want to talk about vintage Rolex because you're really into vintage Rolex. You've 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 published books about about Rolex. Um, you were sort of an early adopter of the fact that these were great things to collect. Before a lot of the buzz going on right now, especially with what I call sort of the speculator community, what was it that attracted Jeff to the, the world of, of vintage Rolex watches? And was it all vintage Rolex watches or just some? Well, no, it was, it was, it was all vintage Rolex. And when James Dowling and I uh, wrote the book, we were very, very proud to have been picked by the publisher to write the book. Uh, we were full of ourselves at the time. I was uh, publishing a zine, as they used to call it, uh, back in the 80s. It was, a, it was a monthly magazine devoted towards uh, a vintage Rolex. And, you know, all of us guys were running around the world buying and selling vintage Rolex, you know, literally like by the bags full. And it was a very, very interesting thing. So the publisher, you know, got a hold of one of my little magazines and uh, asked me and James Dowling to uh, to write a book on Rolex. No one had really done that before. And we were very, very proud of ourselves. And um, we came to find out that they had asked five or six other people to do it. 
but they oh. refused. They refused to do it. Yeah, we weren't first on their mind. Uh, they refused to do it because Rolex, as you know, has always been a very litigious uh, customer uh, uh, company, and they have been very, very, very strong uh, defenders of their intellectual property. So everyone was afraid to, and the book almost didn't get published because I insisted from the very beginning that it be called, that it be called the unauthorized history of Rolex because I didn't want to get sued by Rolex. And when the publisher got the book ready, it didn't say that. And I said, look, I'm out. I'm washing my hands of this thing. I don't want my name on it unless you put the unauthorized history on the cover, which they did. So, yeah, it was it was you're right. We were early adopters. Now the kids today, as I say, um, have gone way beyond that early research that James and I did. It's amazing what they're doing today. But back then, it was really groundbreaking. And it was so groundbreaking that uh, Sotheby's and Christie's allowed us to use all of their intellectual property at no charge. Like half the pictures in the book are from Sotheby's and Christie's, and half are items that James and I owned ourselves. So, yeah, it it was groundbreaking for its time. Now, fast forward, you know, uh, 25 years later, you know, it's still going strong. And those bagfuls of Rolex Daytonas that we used to take over to Italy and sell to the Italian guys, um, you know, for $3,000 or $4,000 or $5,000, are now bringing two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. It's crazy, and I don't see an end. I really don't. When Daytona's first hit ten thousand dollars about twenty-five years ago, I sold every one I had. I thought that's insane, and now to see them bringing a hundred and one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand dollars, it's just it's it's it, made, it just makes your head explode. And one last thing I'll tell you about. Rolex. Everybody asks me what watches to invest in. I tell people not to invest in watches. Don't do it. Just buy something you want to put on your wrist, something you'll enjoy. But if you really put a gun to my head and you want to talk about what to invest in, it's got to be absolutely positively vintage Rolex because they're not making any more. And and I think what's important to say is, well, why Rolex? Are they only good watch? No, it's the fact that Rolex has the most demand. And when you are someone trying to sell an old product, you can only sell it to there's someone out that wants it. And so there might be this amazing watch from some small watchmaker that could be like the best thing ever. But if no one else out there knows that as well, there's not going to be a market for it. The fact that Rolex still spends so much money today is the reason that their watches from yesterday have a demand. Do you agree? Absolutely. It has great demand because of that. Also because, you know, they did anything they could back in the day to sell a watch. They made so many different varieties. And that's where everybody goes crazy right now is is in this variety aspect. You know, a small change in a dial from 1959 to 1963, a small change in a crown guard, a small change in the caliber of movement. Any little small thing makes a watch more valuable. It's gotten so bad that right now, as you know, uh, dials that are damaged, you know, because of air and water, et cetera, a dial that a black dial that turns brown is suddenly worth, you know, fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars simply because <laughs> it's it's anything that makes it different. That's what people it, are looking for. 
I know, but it's, it's defective, man. <laughs> people love defects. Look at look at look at some of the famous defective watches out there. It's people like these aberrations. At some point, when everyone can have a Rolex, it becomes about rarity. Oh yeah, well, could, do you have the rarest of the rarest Rolexes? Oh, Rolex made this just for me. Oh, I can't beat that. You know, it, it's it becomes almost a. <laughs> I, I hate to use the word pissing contest because it sounds so crude, but that's essentially what it is. It's no longer about watch collecting. It's it's men posturing to one another. I I'm afraid you're I'm afraid you're right. I mean, yes, it's like disrespecting our uh, our, our gender, but I think, I think I think you put your finger on the uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. We make some great decisions that gender and some not so great decisions. It's just this how, it, how it works. But it's this process of self-examination. And you ask yourself, who am I wearing this watch for? And what I see a lot is people that don't have joy by just wearing it themselves. They have to be in an environment where someone else validates and be like, oh, Bob, you're, you know that watch is so cool. But until someone mentioned Bob's watch, Bob is feeling bad. I don't want that to be. I want to be able to smile about my own watch. And if someone else happens to think it's cool, that's a nice icing on the cake. But I, I need to be the first and most important critic of my watch. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and, and you're right about, uh, about the bragging rights thing. But then you have the other, the other side of the fence. You know, there's a big thing in my area down here in Tampa Bay where a lot of attorneys – will come in and buy a really, really nice, expensive uh, Rolex president, say, you know, a secondary market one, and they will sell you back. This, this is a thing down here, believe it or not. They'll sell you back the bracelet, and they'll have the watch put on a leather strap. You know, not a NATO is that strap. Bracelet, is that bracelet very valuable? Is that why? Well, no. I. You know what? In the beginning, the reason I heard was they didn't they didn't want to be flashy. They wanted to wear the watch. They wanted to own the watch, but they didn't want their clients to know that they had just spent $30,000 on a watch. So therefore, they got to wear the $30,000 watch, but it's on a leather strap. You know, don't ask. I, I don't no, know. No, it, it's true. I mean, look, you, you know, I'm a lawyer and I, 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 I'm not practicing right now because I'm running a watch publication, but when you out in the world, lawyers have this really weird thing where they don't want to look to clients as though they don't want to appear as though they're, as though they're uh, flashy, but you have to show that you have success. So like, what is that middle ground between showing, yeah, I've won a lot of cases versus I'm in it for me. I'm in it for my own profit. I'm not really concerned about my clients. I'm in it for me. You see what I'm saying? It's like, how do you tell that fine nuanced message? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you figure it out. You let me know. But I mean, but they're means, trying, but, right? Look, I mean, they're they're doing the bold step of taking like the best part off of a Rolex. You met like a Submariner bracelet is so good, and then you have people like putting it on a rubber strap, which actually can look cool. But it's like, how do you take something so good off of a watch and just be like, no, I don't care about that anymore? I don't know. You're talking to a purist. You're you're you're, you're talking to a guy who still doesn't understand the allure of a NATO strap. I still don't get it. Oh, here's, okay, here's the interesting question. So today, there's this sort of vintage style watch craze and you have everything from reissues to homage pieces to brand new watches that look like they were made yesterday. What is the future collectability of a watch that's a reissue? You know what I mean? Like, I understand the popularity of the original from 1970, whatever, but then they make the reissue today, which is probably a far better watch than the original. But what is like, what is the one from today going to be 
you know, is there going to be desire in 10, 20 years from now, like the original? Like, I have no idea. You know, that's a good question. I have no idea either. Rolex has made some um, some examples of things like that. They made a they made a, uh, a Cellini that kind of looked like a bubble back, for instance. It, it went nowhere. I mean, it was a it was a total joke. Now, conversely, Patek Philippe has had great success with that. You know, they started reissuing their their 1918, 1919 officers' watches back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And they have become extremely popular. And they have, in fact, well, there was a little lull in the value, but they've become very, very, very expensive. So I, I think in the long run, again, it's going to depend on supply and demand, just like you said. If, if they flooded the market with them, well, not so much. But if they just made you know a, a limited amount, whether it's a limited edition or, or a small edition, if you will, um, I, 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 think, I think it's going to go up in value. You know what? Breitling just had one, as a matter of fact. Breitling had this very, very colorful, colorful, colorful watch. Are you, are you familiar with it? Yeah. You're, are you talking about the Rainbow one, or are you talking about the ones that did for, like, the airlines? No, the Rainbow. The, the, the Rainbow came out, and when it first came out, I saw that thing, and I was, like, I was in love. It's and great. I went on, I went on to a lot of social media boards, and I said, this thing's crazy. Look, look at this thing. This thing's nuts. And I said, I, I, I did my, my little shtick. Hey, listen, I don't tell anybody to invest in watches, but you're going to invest in a watch and invest in this. I was I was slapped down on every board on the planet because everybody said it was hideous. And you know what? That thing today, I mean, that thing sells for more than retail in many parts of the country. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the rainbow thing is amazing because it's finally become more mainstreamized. I mean, you know, the rainbow colors were until recently almost exclusively associated with sort of the LGBT you know, uh, you know, movement. And if you weren't part of that, you probably couldn't get away with wearing a rainbow. But now rainbows have been sort of uh, re-democratized, if you will. And a lot of people are realizing that rainbows are flashy in a way that precious stones are, but they don't send the same type of um, pretentious message. So for me, colors are like the new diamonds. You know, I agree with you 100%. But then go back and look at like a Frank Mueller crazy colors or whatever. I mean, that's not so... That's not kind of the same thing, is it? But you wouldn't have the same guys wearing it. The, the The man that would wear like a crazy hours watch with a bunch of colors was probably not most likely like a Westerner. Like that Breitling you're talking about, the rainbow Breitling is the dive watch. Like you could have a guy around Florida wearing that. But that same guy probably would not have been wearing the Frank Muller because he would have seen it as being too feminine. You're absolutely right, but but it's a completely different market. That's the cool thing about Breitling. Breitling has this 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 very very masculine appeal, but it's a, but at the same time, you've got this nice masculine diver watch that's, that's, that's obviously very manly, and you've got the you got the colors on it. I, I I don't know a single soul. I don't know anybody on any age spectrum or any you know whatever kind of spectrum you want to come up with that, that wouldn't be comfortable wearing that watch. I, no, I, I agree. I, I think they're fantastic. And, and again, I love having these sort of chats because we're like, we're intellectualizing demand. We're like, I wonder what a broad spectrum of people might be into. And that's, that's what you do a lot when you're our position for different reasons. You, as a retailer, me for a media perspective, because I'm trying to, you know, understand where trends are, where things are popular. But it's interesting how 
the watch is able to reinvent itself constantly. Like watches don't do anything different. Like you and I are technology people and we'll buy like a new computer, a new phone, whatever, and expect it to do something different. Yet in the watch space, we buy the same products again and again and again, and yet they tell the same information. <laughs> We're looking, we, we need them to reinvent themselves in other ways. And that is, that is in the form, that is in the materials they use. And so that's, that's why people are constantly talking about watch design because it's not like new complications are coming up. No, because it's hard to make new innovations when, you know, every wristwatch out there is using essentially the same invention that some guy invented 300 years ago. I mean, it really hasn't changed that much. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, it's, I just sometimes see people having these like, you, you know, these collectors, the ones that take themselves too seriously and they, and they, they sit there and they argue the merits of one movement over another. And you sit there and you're like, hey, everyone. All this stuff is equally obsolete, okay? <laughs> That's exactly right. But but as you said earlier in the conversation, you know, you don't necessarily want to point that out to these gentlemen. Okay, so last last part of the conversation, we're going to wrap up smartwatches. And this is something that that I love talking about because okay, when they first came out, I was like demonized for even talking about them. I was I was literally called a traitor by several Europeans. I thought that was kind of humorous. And I'm like, you know what, everyone, I'm not advocating for smartwatches. I'm recognizing that this is a category which is not only going to grow, but it's here to stay. And you better learn to sort of work with it, not against it, because it's not going to go away. And that's exactly what happened. They went from pretending, like, oh, if we don't acknowledge smartwatches, they'll go away. Like if they give them the cold shoulder, they'll be like, okay, we give up. And then they realized, no, not everyone is looking for Swiss validation um, smartwatches have been something that technology makers have been trying to make again and again for decades now. They finally got something that works. Here's the here's here's my question for you: How does a watch guy combine his love of watches, but still recognize the fact that he's probably going to have to wear it a, 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 a wearable a lot of the time? How do you combine both of that? I, I think you do it the way the, the same way you would wear. I hate to use this analogy, but a pair of shoes. I mean, you've, you've got your knock-around comfortable shoes and that are good for what you need them to be good for. You've got your boating shoes that have, you know, uh, great traction, and you have your dress shoes or your wingtips or whatever uh, for when you're out there dressing up. I think it's the same thing. I, I, was, I was like, um, you know, I was on, I was on a, uh, um, a, a discussion board in Manhattan at a very, very fancy store on Fifth Avenue uh, discussing this very thing. And this was early on. And I said, nah, they're, they're not going to last. It's not going to work. It's bogus. You know, uh, it's going to end up thrown in a drawer with a million other electronic uh, bits and pieces and things that you've bought over the years that you're not going to use. Uh, now I kind of realize what you're saying. They're here to stay, but they've got their place. You, you know, you can strap on a smartwatch and it'll do all the things you need it to do. But you really don't want to wear your smartwatch to a fancy function or to a board meeting or something like that. I mean, your excuse me, your your smartwatch. Um, but then again, that sector is growing too. I guess you know that the second most uh, prevalent smartwatch, other than Apple, from what I understand, uh, is the uh, the Mark series. Are you, are you familiar with those guys? Yeah, the Garmin Mark. Yeah, the Garmin Mark is incredible. I mean, some of those things are just like like 
Like I've got one on my team. desk actually right here. I'm looking at one. I mean, it's crazy that golfing watch that has all the golf courses. Uh, it's they're uh, they're well done. They're well done. It's it's crazy. So yeah, I I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I, I think I think it's here to stay. I, th- I just think it has. Uh, it, it's just a, a different. It's a different watch to have in your collection. Now I do worry about the fact that you know, just like the reason the quartz watches aren't collectible today as much as they should be is because they burn out. You know, things happen to them. You can't fix them. So I do worry about the longevity of it. You know, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, they, they really can't be fixed once they go bad, right? And, and, and six months after you have one, it is essentially obsolete. Is that correct or not? Uh, I mean, there's various degrees of accuracy there. I mean, they are, they are meant to last about, you know, 18 to 24 months, not in terms of durability, but in terms of being like uh, technologically state-of-the-art before some type of, you know, more desirable technology comes along, be it a better processor or, or something like that. But I, I, I think that what's important is to look at it like mobile phones. You know, I have some phones from like 20 years ago, like literally coming apart in my hand. But an iPhone, the way it's made today, like it might not work technologically, but it's, it's basically going to be in the same condition, you know, a decade from now because it's just made a lot better. So I, th- I think that, you know, you and I have seen the absolute infancy of modern smartwatches and they were making junk. But now you look at some of the things that are being made and you're like, you know, this is, this is serious stuff here. So... I don't know that it's going to be collectible, but I think that it's going to be so important, especially activity tracking and some of the technolo- technological conveniences, that people like you and me are going to be forced to wear both. And the one thing I know for sure is that a smartwatch, no matter how amazing it is, does not make me feel like I'm expressing myself like when I wear a traditional watch. Like the, the fact that something has a three-dimensional dial, um, you know, plays with the light in a real way, uh, it has a design and a personality. That's something I want to wear when I'm around people. And, you know, it's been nearly a year since I've been around any, you know, social situations where I'm meeting new people. People are starting to forget what it's like to feel that difference. And so once people go back to the social situations, they're going to recognize that at the very least, they're going to want to wear both. But I agree with you that it's going to be like a leisure watch when you're socializing, when you're hanging out, when you want a quote unquote dumb watch that isn't giving you notifications and things like that. You're going to go for that traditional watch. So I still think it has a lot of merit over the long run, even though it has to live you know, in, in very close proximity to smartwatches. Yeah, and you know what? And, and, and I, we could talk about this for hours, but, but I know we're, uh, we're wrapping up here. But, you know, in, in what world, I mean, how does this work psychologically? that we love these mechanical watches that work on this system that was invented 300 years ago that doesn't really keep precision time. I mean, they do, chronometers, specs, whatever, but that's not even close to the precision time that a smartwatch will, will uh, bring to the table. But yet, I mean, what is, what is the love we have with low-tech? That's essentially what it is. A wristwatch, an automatic wristwatch, is essentially low-tech. You know what, Jeff? That's going to be our next conversation. That's going to be the topic. Why do we love low tech? I, I I think I have some good answers, but we can't get into that right now because that's a whole other hour. Understood. So everyone, this has been Jeff Hess, and you can go to oldnortheastjewelers.com. Uh, he does a lot of things. Go to them for basically all your watch needs. Um, he is an absolute legend, a smart person, and someone I like to call a friend. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Superlative. Enjoyed it, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. 
for questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?